1: Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine fingered host, Dan Johnson.
0: Five, four, three, two, one, and we're live and we're back hopefully everybody had as good of a weekend as i did um now if uh some of you guys follow me on social media and i even think that i discussed it let's see on last week's podcasts that i was going to be doing some fishing this weekend and uh, the weather was absolutely gorgeous i took four hours of pto on friday we headed up to where my in-laws have a cabin. When I say cabin, it's actually a trailer right on the Mississippi River. And uh, got up there early, had a quick bite to eat and then hit the water with you know the, ki- the kids in the boat. And we instantly started catching fish. And that was the theme throughout the entire weekend. Um, the water of the river was really high and uh, I guess higher than normal and my father-in-law took the time to go out and find where these fish were at in the river and uh, wherever they were at man they were stacked in there we were there were times where we were catching five six and they weren't giants by any means but they were fun to catch Uh, largemouth bass we also caught smallmouth we caught striper we caught a one walleye one northern and my wife and father-in-law went out one day, and they caught some bluegills and I think a couple crappies as well. So, overall, the fishing was absolutely excellent. Um, my daughter even got to throw a couple lines out, start reeling. You know, we would set the hook, she would reel it in. Uh, it was just an absolute blast of a weekend. Got a little sunburnt, uh, ate good. Slept good and uh, just had one of those weekends where you you just wish it would end. It would it would it wouldn't end. It would last forever. And unfortunately, that made Monday. I'm recording this on a Monday or doing the editing of this on a Monday, and it made Monday very hard to go back to work, uh, knowing that the weather was still nice and the fish were more than likely still biting. Um, but. We are, we're gonna go up there several more times this summer with the kids. Uh, get them out on the boat. Take them for a boat ride. My my youngest Mac is just a little too young to understand the whole reeling the the fish in. So he was playing with some of the rubber the rubber lures that my father-in-law had. And what do you know? One second, it just took one second of us turning our back, and he fell out of the boat. And it I literally before his heels were even wet. I, I reached in and grabbed him but uh, it was it it's not really unless someone gets a hook in them uh, a you know falls off the boat gets splashed by something uh, gets a, a fish fin in the finger it's uh, not res- not necessarily a successful weekend but uh, again we had an absolute blast and uh, really looking forward to doing uh, more of that my my father-in-law is a stud he's been hunting. Or fishing that uh, section of the river for over 40 years. So he knows where the fish are at. Plus, he's retired. So that's all he does now is fish. And so it's kind of like we have our own personal river guide when we go out, go out with him. But uh, yeah, just an absolute blast of a weekend. Got to enjoy the outdoors. I'm starting to repeat myself again. But today we have another kick-ass podcast and we're going to be talking with a gentleman by the name of Steve. He is a professor at Mississippi State University. He's the quote-unquote deer guy and uh, today we're going to be talking about a variety of topics related to the biology and the physiology – I can't even pronounce that word so I'm not even going to try to say it again – of the white-tailed deer. Uh, And I kind of wanted to tie it in to – Do these products that we are being sold and buying every year actually work? So there's a portion of this podcast that is dedicated to um, research that they have done and the results of that research to show, you know, hey, does this scent spray, is it worth it? You know, uh, is it eliminating any of the the chemicals that your body is putting off? All that kind of stuff we talk about. Uh, we talk about a little bit about the breeding cycle of the white tailed deer. We talk about a little bit about uh, the vitals uh, of a white tailed deer. So it's a really cool, detailed, interesting, you know, enter whatever other word you want to enter in there, but it's a kick ass podcast. And if you guys are deer nuts, you're going to enjoy this podcast particularly. Other than that, I just want to say, You know, we got one of our partners is Deer Lab, and that's what we're going to talk about here real shortly before we get into uh, today's podcast. And if you guys haven't had the opportunity to go do the free 30-day trial, I highly recommend doing it, dumping in all of the trail cameras that you have throughout the years of a particular property and just play around with it. Dig into some of the data and the breakdowns that they offer and the whole goal is for you to forecast deer movement for this upcoming deer season to say hey these deer in this particular part of the property or this particular buck he's not even on my property until you know late October so I don't even want to put any additional pressure on that part of the farm or oh my God, I got this. I got this. My target buck, I found out that he visits this one section of the farm one time in early October on, let's say, a cold front. So the first cold front in October, you better get your butt in that tree stand in that area of the farm. Uh, One thing that I'm playing around with Deer Lab right now is tracking my two and three-year-olds, right? So not only am I looking at my big mature shooters my four-year-olds are older I'm also seeing what last year's three-year-olds are going uh, have done or potentially might be doing for this upcoming season and getting a head start on okay if you know if a big boy all of a sudden disappears come my rut vacation I have a backup plan and that backup plan can be a four-year-old this year's four-year-old last year's three-year-olds that I have you know data and information uh, from on uh, the trail cameras pictures that I've gotten and I'm going to use that information to forecast where this particular buck might be uh, on the farm uh, in during that rut vacation or maybe any weekends leading up to my rut vacation so just a ton of information that you can dig into and play around with in uh, your trail camera pictures can definitely tell you more information than just looking at a cool buck so the first thing you need to do is go to deerlab.com slash nine fingers and from there you'll be able to sign up for a free 30 day, Trial period, like I said, dump as many trail camera pictures into that as humanly possible and start gathering the, the research, gathering the data, dig into it, and uh, hopefully you might be able to uh, find find uh, where these deer are messing up and then you can attack them this upcoming season. So uh, definitely something to look at. Now, let's get into today's, I guess it's just kind of a BS session on deer biology podcast. Enjoy. All right, on the phone with me now, all the way from Mississippi State University, Steve Damaris. How are you doing today, Steve? Great, Dan. I'm really happy to be with you. Thank you very much. You know, I get really excited about science, right? And I also get really excited about deer hunting gear, right? So if we can, today, what I want to talk about is how science could can prove or disprove some of the products that the hunters like or use throughout, you know, their season whether or not, you know, they could be gimmicks or in fact science based off science and based off a deer's biology some of those products work.
1: I'd be happy so, to talk about that.
0: Perfect, perfect. Now go ahead and tell us what is your title at Mississippi State University. And uh, I guess what are your what are your daily tasks or, or yearly tasks that uh, that you do there?
1: All right. Well, I'm a professor of wildlife management in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Aquaculture and I basically I'm basically the deer specialist for the university from a research standpoint. Okay. Uh, I like to refer to myself as the deer guy. And uh, <laughs> We're actually blessed here at, at, at MSU that we have uh, not just myself, who's a deer guy, but we have uh, Bronson Strickland, who is officially our extension specialist, but he's also a deer guy, too. And so the two of us have worked for about 15 years on a variety of deer research projects. And him being in outreach his part of the you know the the partnership is to help get the information out to the public and uh, then in addition to the two of us we've got a, a new relatively new faculty member who is a habitat management specialist and he's done a lot of work with deer and then we have a fourth member uh... of the faculty here that's a movement ecologist and he has worked in uh... canada and the united states on a variety of movement projects but Uh, definitely within the the deer family. So the four of us make up a really fantastic uh, core group of faculty. We call ourselves the MSU Deer Lab. And uh, I, I would put us up against any, really, any university in the country. I don't think there's anybody that has four faculty members that specialize one way or another in deer research
0: right so you guys are immersed in that 365 days a year pretty much absolutely i I grew up hunting and fishing and and uh,
1: became a a deer nut when i was in high school and started deer hunting and uh, i was just blessed with the opportunity to work with deer for my master's and my phd back in uh late 70s and, and early 1980s and since uh since 1982, I've been associated with uh, a uni- one university or another as a, a large, large game specialist, a deer specialist. So, yeah, I'm a deer guy.
0: So, throughout the year, I know you guys do a lot of research, right? And your team, uh, and that research revolves around large game. And I take it for the most part, whitetails. Is that is that accurate?
1: Well, most of our work, yes, is whitetail oriented. Okay. When I was in Texas, which was 15 years of my career, uh, there are a lot of different deer species in Texas. I worked with uh, mule deer, uh, psyched deer, or sika deer, um, axis deer, fallow deer, black buck antelope. I mean, they've got a lot of big game species in Texas. So I've worked with a, a bunch of different ones there. But uh since I've been back in Mississippi the last uh 20 almost 20 years now uh it's been mainly whitetails and then some some elk
0: okay so you've pretty much lived and breathed whitetails for the last 35 years of your life yep yes sir okay all right so now going back to your job and your role uh at Mississippi State what uh you know what does your department try to accomplish in these research tasks that you guys take on every year
1: well we are an applied group of, of researchers we want to answer questions that mean something to people that either manage the population or manage the land mm-hmm. and so uh, the, the people that fund our research have questions and a lot of the time it's uh, our state wildlife agency. Sometimes we have projects with other's other states' wildlife agencies as well. We have projects currently with Louisiana and Alabama. Uh, one of our faculty members is working in Michigan and Missouri on, on uh, big game related projects. So uh, we go all around and, and do stuff, and I've been in Kentucky. Uh, but state agencies come to us with applied questions. Uh, most recently my, my most recent project started here in mississippi is the state agency gets year in year out complaints from hunters saying we're not seeing the deer that we think we should see on our property right. what's the problem and it's probably because of your management guidelines that that you're causing this problem and so the state came to us and said we want to know what is happening to the deer during the hunting season how are hunters affecting it uh, are there really a reduced number of deer on the landscape that the uh, that the hunters are, are not seeing because they're gone or are they just becoming invisible uh, to the hunters and so we have a large-scale project in the works right now we have 55 adult bucks with GPS collars that are collecting their own information and we'll be having hunters hunters next hunting season and the season after that documenting where they hunt, when they hunt, and then we'll be able to look at how the deer respond to hunters during bow season, during primitive weapon season, and then during the the traditional modern arms fire season. And we have a four-month period here in Mississippi starting with bow season October 1st, running through Primitive weapons bow season at the end of January. So deer are faced with four months of potential hunters being in the field. Right. And so that that's an example. I'm sorry, I get I get so excited about the work we do. <laughs> uh, I can get rambling. But bottom line, we answer people's questions. Right. And,
0: and, and I tell you what, particular. on this Podcast, you can ramble as much as you want because everything so far that's come out of your mouth is gold. Because I know that the my listeners love facts and love this, you know, the stuff that you guys are doing and find that interesting. So, ramble on, I say. Great. Well, if I could, then
1: you gave me the opening.
0: All right. You got to live
1: with it. Yes. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> about uh, eight years ago, we did a study in Oklahoma looking at the effect of hunting. Uh, hunters uh, on the landscape on deer movements and Mm -hmm. it was a really cool study it was done on uh, a private foundations property and we set up three areas it was a 4500 acre property so we divided it into thirds roughly 1500 acres each and one third we had no hunters Mm -hmm. one third we had a relatively low density of hunters uh, which was uh, about uh, a hunter per, per uh, I think it was 175 acres and then uh, another third that we had a hunter per uh, 75 acres and we assigned them you know little blocks that were that acreage that they mm-hmm. had to hunt in so we distributed yep. the hunters across these 1,500 acre areas at specific densities and this, and this hunting season was only a 16-day gun season. And we did it for two years, and we moved the, the treatments around so that the same 1,500 acres didn't get the same treatment two years in a row. Okay. And we, we documented really significant impacts on deer movement patterns during the hunting season. After the first three days of the season, opening weekend, There were significant reductions in the way they moved, uh, significant changes in how they moved, and then significant reductions in the amount of movement during the day. So they reduced reduced their movement rate during the day, and when they did move, it was five-fold or five times more complex and okay. uh, compared to like a straight line, if you go from point A to point B in a straight line, that's, right. a, that's not complex. You could walk the same distance uh, just by walking in a, a square box and, and never leaving a 10-foot area. Right. Uh, you, know, you could, same distance walked, but if, if it's five-fold more complex, it's more uh, concentrated into a smaller area. And okay. so uh, after opening weekend, the deer decreased their total movement during the day. And then their what the movement that they did make was five times more complex. So in other words, they were staying in smaller areas and just walking around within them. And the areas that they chose were two and a half times more cover than... Right. Before, the, uh, before they adjusted
0: to the hunters hmm. that's pretty interesting so I take it that your studies kind of show that and this is just me making an assumption that the October lull that a lot of people say they see as hunters as, you know observation from the stand has something to do with the initial startup of maybe let's say uh, an October 1st hunting season Uh, i'm not sure what you mean by the october lull october lull okay have you ever heard of the term october lull
1: uh it's a new one for me
0: okay well the october lull is basically hunters saying that they're not seeing any deer move uh in the middle part of the month, because of one reason or another, they say that a majority of the movement is uh be it, nocturnal uh the deer just aren't moving, so the hunters aren't seeing it you know they're seeing a reduced number of deer from the tree stand from Opening week, you know, let's say opening days, October first. So they see some pat, you know, some some patterning going back and forth through the food source. Then the middle of October hits, and all of a sudden, this movement just dries up for a little bit until, you know, later in October when the bucks start, you know, start to the breeding cycle. So okay. the October lull, hypothetically, which me personally, I'm not a, I don't believe in it. Uh, the October lull is, I guess, perceived hunter um, hunter's point of view from the stand, uh, not necessarily any scientific fact to b- back it up.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, that, what you described there as the October lull, early observations, the beginning of bow season, and then less observation, that fits uh, what we showed in terms of that opening weekend, mm-hmm. and then deer became more nocturnal less apt to be out moving in, uh, outside of cover. Uh, right? and then we, we do know that once breeding season gets clicking along and the females start showing more, uh, estrous behavior, then the bucks are going to be less apt to, uh, be controlled by their fear
0: of hunters. Okay. All right. And that's, uh, that is a really, that's really cool to to hear that because you know a lot of uh i guess you want to call uh in television entertainers celebrities whatever um people that have you know writers they talk a lot about this um october lull and that you know it can be influenced by the moon or it can be influenced by the um it can be influenced by a change in the uh, food source or something you know you know there's a variety of things that i've heard and read over the years that you know s- say what contribute to the october lull but it sounds to me that a lot of it has to do with pressure and that they're not necessarily moving less but they are moving they're still moving but moving in a smaller area that that is the
1: document that that's the response that we showed in our studies in Oklahoma, now, okay. one one thing to qualify that is, you know, that was a pretty uh, significant hunter impact that we put on the land. If you've got a bow hunter going out and hunting a thousand acres, that bow hunter is not going to be impacting deer movements. They may spook a deer or deer in a little, you know, a small area, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm talking about a significant opening weekend event right. uh, you know but, but if you have that then you will definitely see a drop we saw a uh, significant drop in the observation rates of our deer in this study we knew uh, after the fact we knew where all the deer were uh, on our study area based on our gps collars and we knew where every hunter was and we could look at the actual observation rate of our tagged deer that we knew was that they knew we knew the deer was in that treatment area. And after opening weekend we had a sixty percent drop in observation rates. The deer were still there, sixty percent less observation of them. Okay. So so if you see, you know, ten deer opening weekend, you go back the next weekend and you see four. Well those right. other you know, those six aren't gone. You right. just don't see them because they've responded to the landscape in the science world. That they refer, like to refer to it as the landscape of fear. Okay. Uh, you know, deer are a prey animal. Right. And when there's no predators around, they can be easygoing and mm-hmm. not worry about things. But when predators hit the landscape, and they sense it, and they figure it out. They're here. Well, I'm not going to get shot because right. it's not in my best interest. You know, they're not thinking about it, of course. They're they're deer, but uh, they're responding with instinct. Okay. And and they're going to survive, and that right. means changing their behavior. It would be it would be totally uh, against nature not to adjust their behavior.
0: Right. Okay. So my next question is, let's say I'm I'm managing a farm, right? And I don't like what what you just explained happening. I don't want there to be a a quote-unquote October lull on my property because of hunter intrusion and pressure. Have you guys done any research about how whitetail act on a let's say like a a working farm or a very high pressure farm where there's a lot of, you know, human interaction, do they get conditioned to it? Anything like that?
1: Yeah, certainly deer can become conditioned. You know, the classic case of the farmer driving and seeing lots of deer, uh, and the hunters don't see the same deer that the farmer does because the deer are conditioned to that farmer's truck, uh, they they're also conditioned to the hunters driving on the four-wheeler into the woods and they realize that that means hunters are on the on the landscape and they're they're not going to they're going to adjust
0: their behavior. Right. So if they do that, let's say a four-wheeler comes through their property every day and it you know, the first couple times, the first month they they get spooked by it does a deer ultimately get conditioned to where they stop running away from that noise uh, and they get to the point where they can, um, you know, they they just stand 10, 15 feet away from the four-wheeler or 10, 15 feet away from the truck as the truck drives by and, and, they're, and they learn to not fear it? To, to a great extent,
1: yes. Now, I, you know, I've seen personally and had other people tell me about you know, the deer that walk through their backyard or along the backyard fence with the dogs barking on the, this side of the fence and the deer just looking at the dogs. They know right. the dogs aren't going to bother them because right. they've, they've learned that. Right. Uh, but if you just hit, set a dog out in the woods barking, the deer's going to run. Mm-hmm. So they figure out. it's You're just thinking from an ecological standpoint. Animals don't need this. Don't, well, they can't. Spend energy doing things that don't benefit them, so it's not advantageous to them to spend energy running away from something that's not going to hurt them so initially, yeah, they'll run away a few times, maybe a dozen times, but then eventually they'll they'll realize you know they'll run for you know less and less, and they'll kind of stop and look and oh, that wasn't really a concern after all, and eventually they don't bother running
0: right. So, from, you know, in your opinion, would it be best for a hunter, let's say there's uh, a piece of property, there's two pieces of property, you know, we're talking about a, a scientific uh, um, research now, there's two pieces of property, they are exactly the same, they have the exact same deer on those properties, and one has absolutely zero pressure, and the other one has a controlled amount of pressure, but it's consistent, right, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. What What do you think has the better chance of having deer encounters on, let's say, like—and I don't know how to ask this question, but is, is the guy who goes in for the first time and— uh, hunts on the no pressure property going to have better success than a guy who goes into a property that has consistent pressure on it.
1: I would say he'd have better luck on the going in for the first time.
0: Okay. Okay. So, laying off of a property as much as possible until the you know the the all of the conditions line up whether it's a a cold front coming through or a it's starting the rut and the breeding cycle and you know deer like you mentioned deer are less apt to have fear at least bucks are uh because it's the the breeding season you feel that they would have a a better chance or i guess encounter rate
1: yes and one of the things we want to look at in our our new mississippi project is trying to come up with a threshold of activity that Deer will tolerate before they become more secretive okay. and, and that's you know like you're talking about that that second property which just kind of a relatively constant but low we want to know what that value is right is it you know three days of hunting a week uh, separated you know by no more you know no more than one you know a day you got to skip a day another day skip a day uh, interesting project done uh, by Steve Ditchkoff at University of Auburn With this same kind of question, he uh, he documented the uh, proximity or closeness of collared deer to a deer stand, and he showed that if the stand was occupied for two consecutive days, deer would tend to avoid that stand for up to five days. Okay. And or you know, the area around the stand, they would, they would avoid that. So that shows that back to back days is too much. Right. Okay. So So, it is one day and then a a breather and then another day. Okay. Well, Okay. we haven't figured that out. We haven't
0: split that hair out. Right. And me personally, I kind of live by this motto that I didn't come up with, but have heard from other hunters first time in best time in where the first time to a stand location is probably going to be your best time in just because you're breaking virgin ground, so to speak. hmm Okay. Yeah. That's pretty interesting stuff. Um, now, anything else that you want to discuss as far as uh, deer, uh, deer movement and deer behavior?
1: Well, uh, not specifically right now on the hunting aspect. Okay. No, that, that, okay. Yeah i'll have lots more to talk about uh this is a two-year study starting this coming hunting season so in two years
0: we'll be able to talk for hours on on our newest uh, work perfect and i want you back on when that happens look forward to it dan all right so now i kind of want to transition over to the biology uh portion of a whitetail Um, And specifically their sight, their smell, and their hearing, and how they use those defense mechanisms to, um, I guess, uh, recognize a threat. And then, you know, how we try to stop them from recognizing that threat with the products that we you know, from the products that we use and buy on a you know on a yearly basis. So the first thing that I want to talk about, and and probably which is the most controversial, uh, from a product standpoint, is a whitetail's nose. Every t- everywhere you read, every every, you know, everything that you hear is about you can't beat a whitetail's nose. And uh, before we started recording, you talked a little bit about. Um, some scent control methods of some research that you've done, so why don't you share that information with us?
1: Sure, Dan. We compared uh, the top three scent control products several years ago using very controlled circumstances. Uh, We sprayed the products on shirts and then randomly assigned those shirts to volunteer students who sat in the shirts literally wrapped in a plastic bag And then after 30 minutes, we uh, basically had a device that sucked the air out of that plastic bag, and then ran it through a kind of chemical analysis machine that I can't even pronounce the name of, (laughs) so I won't even try. But uh, it evaluated the scents, the the smells, the chemicals inside that plastic bag, with uh, the three different, you know. Students wearing one of the three different uh, treated T-shirts, and then we also had a, a set of T-shirts that weren't treated with any scent control, and so they were our, you know, here's all the chemicals that you could smell, and and then we looked at the three chemical products as in terms of did they control these all of these chemicals that were found in the the untreated uh, student volunteers. Okay. Uh, generally, we found about. None of the three top products controlled more than about 40% of the chemicals being released by the untreated student volunteers.
0: So, so 40% me, of, yeah. let's say, if scent was 100, 40% of, only 40% was destroyed by that that product, and 60% remained to... Go wherever yes, okay, now,
1: one product was better than another in terms of certain chemicals, okay. uh, but overall, they were you know all about the same in terms of effectiveness, and none of them were what I would say, wow, this is really effective, right. now, that said, this is based totally on uh, the number of chemicals produced by the student workers that didn't have the treated t-shirts compared to the numbers sampled in the treated t-shirts. There might be only one chemical that's a key scent that the deer might smell. And maybe that one chemical was controlled by all the three products. I don't know. Our work, you know, we don't know exactly each of which chemical of the 100 chemicals. Uh, a deer would actually scent over another.
0: Okay. But so there's there like was, a hierarchy of molecules, the scent molecules that you feel the deer triggers a deer's I guess fear factor.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's, okay. there's certain I'm sure that there would be certain chemical scents that would warn a deer like, "Oh, darn, I'd better get out of here." Right. Over over, you know, it's probably every living organism or every mammal probably produces certain chemicals so right. the chemicals that other deer are producing that we also produce they're not going to cause an alarm so it would be human specific
0: sense okay so chemicals. then so then i don't know are you allowed can you share with us the the brands or the products that you tested the three that you tested
1: uh, actually, we we signed a a non-disclosure agreement on, okay. on the actual names uh, at at the time, by uh, the the one company that funded the project that wanted to hopefully see that their product was much better than the others, and um, well, we found what we found.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then uh, were these all spray products that you uh, that I guess are marketed towards the guy gets out of his truck and he sprays down before he goes to his tree stand? Yeah, blind. Okay. So they're all liquid based. Um uh, did you do any type of ozone studies uh or sc- like o- O3 scent control studies? No, we haven't haven't done anything like that. Okay. All right. So so then um I guess now on your opinion of some of these scent products that are on the market, you know, we have this research that's in front of us saying that the best spray that you tested out of those three, a top brand, only only eliminated forty percent and of the odor that was on that T-shirt. Yeah, rough, now, roughly forty percent of the chemicals being produced. Okay, all right. So then. That's only on a T-shirt, right? Now, obviously, humans breathe out of their mouth. Why don't you elaborate on what you told me about uh, the scent coming out of a human's mouth?
1: Yeah, I mean, our breath—we're—we're—I don't—I don't know what the actual volume of breath, you know, air in and out of a human pair of lungs is per hour, but it's pretty darn significant. And there's chemicals coming out
0: constantly,
1: right. and that's a you know, if you could control 100 percent of the chemicals being produced by the skin on your body, you'd still have a significant amount of chemicals coming out of your mouth. Right. And and there's no way you can stop breathing for the entire, you know, six hours <laughs> you're on the deer stand. So, That'd be funny. And, and so, you know, I, I really think and I'm I'm, I'm not bad, I don't want to bad talk, the scent products that are out there, they do control scents, and uh, you know, so there's some benefit to them. Uh, Charcoal, you know, these charcoal clothing that you can buy, that's going to control some scent production. Uh, So it's not that they don't work, they just don't work completely. And even if they did work on the clothes odor, you'd still be breathing. So as a hunter, I believe you have to go back to basics, and right. you have to use the wind. Right. If the deer is downwind of you, and if you're breathing, they're going to be able to se- smell you. Right. So you have to either be downwind from them or up high enough so that your scent is not dispersing down to them.
0: Right. Okay. So from a, now from a product standpoint, and if, you know, cause I used to be that guy who would go out and I would buy probably a new spray bottle once every two weeks. Uh, if I was hunting a lot, you know, I would put it liberally on uh, and obviously still not addressing my, you know, the mouth, you know, all, all the scent or the chemicals that come out of your mouth and your skin and your hair and all that stuff does the the spray on products do you feel that they work good enough to you know to slow down or maybe make that uh fear factor or that uh triggered fear lower or if a deer walks down wind wind of you and you're still dripping even you're really you've you've applied that scent that scent spray liberal is it going to affect that at all do you feel or is it just kind of a waste of money put me on the spot there dan thanks (laughs) Uh, i
1: I, you know it's controlling some of the scents the smells the chemicals it's controlling some of them and if it happens to be controlling ones that deer associate specifically with humans, then there's certainly some benefit to it. So I, I don't want to say it's a waste of money, I, and I won't say that, but, right. uh, you know, if you're downwind from the deer, it doesn't matter, you know, what right. your scent is. Right. They're not going to smell you. Right. But, of course, there's always going to be deer downwind of you. You know, if you're in the woods, there's hopefully always going to be something downwind as well as upwind but you know the deer you're going to be worrying about harvesting or need to be upwind from you
0: right okay now other than like these scent sprays we have some of these cover scents right and Mm -hmm. one one product in particular is called nose jammer right and i don't know have you ever heard of nose jammer no Okay, so it is a concentrated vanilla extract type of product. Um, I could be a hundred percent wrong on that, but the, they market it towards spraying it on your boots as you walk in, or and on your tree, uh, even on yourself a little bit. Uh, and I've I've used it, and I've I feel I've had good results with it. But the market they market it towards that product when a deer smells it, it. Overwhelms them so, I and I always talk to it about getting into a car of a guy who smokes cigarettes or mm-hmm. walking into a pizza uh, joint for the you know the first five minutes, all you smell is that aroma of pizza and you can't smell anything else because it's so concentrated. Mm-hmm. How long do you feel it would? I mean, can can that trick a deer's nose in, in a in a method like that? Or an application like that?
1: Well, uh, I have, I'm just guessing here. I, okay. I could see that it would, sure. Right. Okay. Now, I, I'd also ask, though, are uh, deer. How many deer? How often does a deer smell vanilla? And is right. it going to be like, ooh, uh, what is that? I'm running away from that. Right. Uh, because it's a strange scent.
0: Right. So. so I, as far as that marketing is concerned, they say it's all natural, right? It's found in nature. It's just a very high concentrate con- concentration of it. So when they hit it, it's that it it overwhelms them. That's that's how they market it anyway. Okay,
1: I, I can't argue with that. That you're trying to overwhelm certain sense with another scent.
0: Okay. Now, kind of elaborating on that, um, do you f- feel that? A deer's nose is obviously, it's one of its best, uh, you know, defense mechanisms. Let's see, how do I want to ask this? I want to ask if, what, from your experience, what triggers a deer... to have fear and want to run away obviously human scent right or predator scent because they're a prey a prey animal but what about i mean have you done any studies on let's say like gasoline or exhaust or cigarette smoke or like, like i guess lilac soap or something like that is there <laughs> is there certain things that rank higher or lower on that fear factor
1: that's uh, i have totally no knowledge on on that um
0: Okay. I just say I don't know. Okay. All right. All right. So, any other interesting facts that you'd like to share with us or any type of research based off of uh a whitetail's sense of smell?
1: No, I think uh I think I think we've covered it.
0: Okay. All right. Now sight. Uh, their eyes, what they see. Um, you know, I've always heard deer see black and white Uh, is that true no there's significant
1: scientific data to support that they see colors
0: okay is there a range or is that do they favor one color more than others yeah
1: they don't have the same color range that we do uh, but they tend to see better in Uh, the range of blue to yellow to green in in that range okay and uh, and that that makes sense because uh, their world is uh, blue sky green vegetation and uh, those are important colors to
0: them okay now from a camouflage standpoint have you guys done any research or studies that, uh, sh- like that, show what the most effective camo pattern is?
1: Uh, no, but uh, let me let me add a little clarification about what they see. In okay. addition to those colors, they also see very well in the ultraviolet, or the UV spectrum, okay. and so they see things that we can't see. Uh, and, and so that that give, that's what gives them the edge uh over us in terms of uh what we see. We're, you know, we're adapted to daytime hunting and okay. life in the in light, in light, and that's why we see vividly uh subtle differences in color. They're not adapted to daytime uh activities per se. They're more of a, you know, crepuscular or, Early evening, nighttime, early early day when it's not quite as bright out, and so that's what they're adapted to see. But in the UV is is that vision that they can see? It doesn't require the light that
0: uh, that we need to see. Okay, so, so they have that ability. Is it their? Is it the makeup of their eye then that allows them to see? Uh, is it ultraviolet light, or they see? ultraviolet uh, energy or something like that? Well, it's the
1: receptors, the type of receptors that they have in their eyes that allow them to see different um, frequencies of light or wavelengths is the proper
0: term. Okay. So there's a company out there called Hex, right? And they claim that they – humans give off some kind of energy that allows them to uh, that allows animals to see them uh, better and this product you can put over your head it's uh, they have shirts they have pants and it blocks that or it reduces it dramatically uh, is is that a thing
1: yeah that's the new country there for me Dan I, I've never heard of the product and um, so i yeah, I don't know what it's okay. doing.
0: Okay, gotcha, gotcha. I didn't know if, uh, you know, they s- do humans or pr- predators, let's say, do they give off an ultraviolet uh, um, wavelengths? A signature? Yeah, signature. Well, um,
1: I don't know. That's okay. a good question. We, right. we certainly give off an infrared signature. Right. Uh, you know, a heat signature but um, I, I just don't know about that okay I, I don't know that they do certainly I, right. I, I can't so I can't say that they don't
0: right now with with a deer being able to see uh, blues and greens really uh, better than other colors I would assume that they pick up movement better like movement of blue and movement of green better is that is would that be accurate
1: movement is is their key they they sense movement better than the distinguishing color patterns okay so uh, that is their strong suit And, and that's why it's so frustrating when you're trying to hunt and and you you got an itch, and it's so hard. You 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 want to turn constantly, looking, and so you're always moving. And and then you you think you see something, so you move, you know, a foot over to to look better, and then you move some more, and and so now they're really spooked, and boy, they're they're, they're tough animals to hunt.
0: Right, right. So with like uh, like a camo pattern. Um, your best bet is to just stay still. Uh, the pattern itself probably, you know, if you're moving around, there's probably not a camo pattern out there that will help you per se, as much as sitting still is just the best overall.
1: Sitting still, but also disruption of a pattern. Okay. I mean, a pattern being the shape of a human is a pattern that they could recognize and if you disrupt that shape then you're helping yourself and so you know and that's the basis for camo patterns is the disruption of a shape trying to make it blend in and uh... you know t- was it twenty years ago twenty five years ago when they came out with the first 3d perception camo patterns that was a big leap forward and, right. and those those things do help i think uh, in my mind, there's nothing better than a true three-dimensional, uh, the, these uh, sets that you can get that are literally cut, have little cuts in them so that they have little, right. uh, like a little physical shape to them, physical Almost depth. like a
0: ghillie suit? Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's,
1: yeah, there's probably a reason why you know our military uses ghillie suits, because they're really effective.
0: Okay. All right so then um you know camo really is the only as, as far as sight is concerned what about decoys um have you done any research uh, maybe a, a whitetail's aggression during the rut on decoys or um how effective uh, a decoy is to bringing uh, attracting deer to your decoy or to a stand location
1: we've we've never researched that dan that's uh, that's a good question.
0: Okay. All right. So the next thing I'm not thing... familiar
1: with anyone researching that question.
0: Okay. Let's see. So we've talked about sight, we've talked about smell, um, and we've we've talked about hearing. What how good Or I want to go back to to smell for a second. And the 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 biology of of their nose compared to let's say like a, a human's nose um, what what is the difference how how actually good is their sense of smell oh wow um,
1: I, I couldn't give you a, a an accurate number about how much better they are but uh, think about the shape of their of their snout how long that snout is and think about a similar shape of a dog's snout and think about particular breeds of dogs like tracking dogs, bloodhound right. dogs, they can smell a trace chemical a day after you know an animal left that chemical right. and so that same kind of snout is present in deer and so they're pretty darn good smellers scent uh, scent. scent sensors uh compared to humans you know look look at the noses we've got they're nothing right Right.
0: so they've they've just evolved to have a what bigger air intake to you know
1: they they have more uh, sensory cells in that longer snout there's more room for them to be packaged and then and more surface area for these cells to be exposed to what's being brought in
0: okay all right and then what about the sense of you know they have glands in, in their mouth right and they have glands on the uh, top of their head and eye right or is it mm-hmm. yeah and then they have their uh, tarsal glands on their back legs mm-hmm. other than and, yeah. yep so how how do they use those throughout the year
1: well some of them uh, are seasonally used Uh, and well one of the classic uh, glands is the tarsal gland and that's probably the uh, one that hunters think the most of because when they harvest an older buck or a doe that's in you know close to heat you know their tarsal glands those are the the big tufts of hair uh, on the inside of their hind legs right and uh that tarsal gland is basically one of the more active glands because one it's producing uh, chemicals on its own plus it has the, they urinate on it and so it's maintaining a really active bacterial uh, population that's producing their own chemicals as well so it's a really you know full of scent part of their scent array but then uh, another important producer is down between the the two digits um, you know they, they have two uh, hoof uh, digits that are touching the ground right and, and there's a, a sebaceous uh, gland there that produces a waxy material and if you ever uh, harvest a deer spread those hooves and look up uh, up underneath the hair that's kind of covering them and you'll see a, an indentation. If you stick some your knife up in there, or something you can bring out like a, a waxy white material, and and that's a secretory gland that's really important in terms of leaving their scent on the ground for other deer to follow. Okay. And you mentioned the the forehead gland, that the gland that's uh, it's tied towards the the timing of the rut and that you know that period when they have hardened antlers, it's not Uh, used throughout the year except for when they have hardened antlers and they use that to again communicate to produce uh, oils and, and scents to mark trees that they're rubbing on.
0: Okay. So when they do those things, like if I saw you, I would come up to you, probably shake your hand and say, hi, my name is Dan. And you would say, hi, my name is Steve. And, you know, we'd have a conversation. What what does the whitetail communication or the whitetail conversation look like?
1: <laughs> wow, that's a great question, Dan. Um, well, what let, let's uh, – we all know how – two dogs have that communication right (laughs) they're gonna smell each other right and uh deer do the same kind of thing they're they're gonna want to smell each other uh and you know the deer that are living on somebody's property they're not generally unknown to each other so they've already gone through those preliminary how you doings uh and they know who's who and and they've probably worked out who's boss who that dominance hierarchy is because every age and and sex group uh, within a deer population has their own little hierarchy and then uh, you know males tend to be dominant over females uh, at feeding sites Uh, older males tend to be dominant over younger males Older females are dominant over younger females. An older female would be dominant over a younger male. Uh, you know, there's, there's all this hi- hierarchy that's there for a purpose. And and again, back to my earlier comment about animals don't waste energy needlessly. Right. If they did, they wouldn't be here. They'd be extinct. Right. And uh, the whole dominance thing is designed to keep them from wasting energy and you know they figure out who's dominant and then they live with that within their little community now what's cool about the breeding season in the the rut is the males are kind of they're reinvigorated each year when their testosterone levels come up and they they think they're a you know the bad guy and and the biggest the biggest guy on the on the block and they want to prove it and so each year they they kind of re-go go go through that again um and that's why we see so much cool stuff if you spend enough time out in the woods you you know there's nothing more exciting to have be able to watch two bucks that are, are actually mature bucks that are in in fighting in a serious
0: conflict
1: right i mean it's just oh golly it's amazing
0: I w- I've only seen, other than little bucks, you know, sparring or, or getting into it a little bit. I think I've only seen two actual knockdown dragout fights in my, you know, I I started hardcore bow hunting when I was in 2006, right, and yeah. in from from that day to this to today, I've only seen two mature bucks go at it, and it was one of the craziest things. I, it felt like. I felt like someone was pushing a semi-truck through the timber. It was so loud. And it really wasn't even, you know, they they say you, you rattle to try to simulate a buck fight. Well, it mm-hmm. didn't sound anything like that because once they, once they are engaged, all they did is push back and forth and push back and forth and push back and forth. There wasn't – you couldn't even really hear their antlers. Mm-hmm. So that right there amazes me how – a rattle you know sometimes rattling can trigger a buck to run in full bore to you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do you know do you know anything about that uh, as far as that trigger
1: well yeah you, you've got different sounds involved in that triggering and basically uh well I can, you can tie, i'll tie this back to our earlier scent discussions too but um mm-hmm. uh, there's the sound, the initial sound of the antlers clattering together and, and that's certainly an important part of a rattling sequence but uh, a dear a dear friend of mine uh, Bob Zagelin, you, you've probably heard of him, he does a lot of writing and, and uh, you know, we've done a lot of cooperative research over the years uh, in Texas, he's a South Texas guy, a biologist but uh, he's taught me a lot about deer rattling because he's worked his entire life in South Texas where there's you know, plenty of, of bucks and rattling can be so effective. Right. Uh, his sequence is to you know, do s- just short bursts with antler to antler clattering and then he'll spend five minutes kicking brush and pounding the ground and trying to make that sound that you were just describing that you know it doesn't sound like antlers clicking. That's what he's making in his sequence because that's what a fight really sounds like. Right. He's not sitting there just clicking antlers for, for five or 10 minutes because that's not what a fight sounds like.
0: Right. All right. So here's something that just kind of popped up, you know, as methods, as you know, we as hunters try to trick these deer uh, sometimes with scents, right? Whether that is a an estrus urine or buck urine or some kind of synthetic, uh, I guess, urine replicate that, you know, is everything is, you know, get your big buck to step out in front of your tree stand so you can shoot it. Have you guys done any type of research as far as the effectiveness of um, how deer react to... Uh, urine or synthetic urine yes okay uh, and we're actually in in the midst
1: of some of that right now so I really can't talk about it
0: okay all right so okay can you can you share what the research is not the results yet but can can you share what you're trying to prove or what the hypothesis is
1: well we we've done some work looking at effectiveness of specific products and we're trying to use behavioral and biochemical analyses to uh, develop the world's best uh,
0: urine product okay all right so then uh, how much time do you have left on your on that research we
1: should be done within a year a year
0: okay all right
1: we, and you know so our hope is to have a an MSU Deer Lab product out, uh, not for this hunting season,
0: but the next one. I gotcha. All righty. Now, other than that, uh, some biology, right? I mean, if you, from a a shot standpoint, you know, everybody talks about where you want to shoot a deer. Obviously, if you drill a a deer in his heart, he's going to die, right? That's a no-brainer. Have you, and I don't see you guys shooting deer with a bow and broadhead in your facility and you know tracking them but from a from a damage standpoint to the the whitetails biology have you guys done any research or have any information about you know how far can a deer go off one lung or how long can a deer go if uh, he's shot in the liver or the stomach or you know the intestines or any research like that?
1: Uh, yeah, actually, um, not so much research we've personally done, but one of our cooperators here in Starkville is a, actually a, is a retired surgeon, and, okay. and uh, he's also uh, written and, and photogra- did a lot of photo- wildlife photography uh, by the name of Joe Bumgartner. And okay. he's actually uh, spoken at some of our uh, deer workshops that we put on on the physiology and pathology of wounds to to animals. Okay. Uh, and what does it take to uh, significantly degrade the life of an animal? How much blood loss, um, and what's the most effective way to get that blood loss effected uh, in an animal? Uh, before I share some of his thoughts, let me uh, backtrack just a little bit because we, early on, we were talking about. Sense, and, yep. and then we talk about rattling. Now, it's been shown through research that the majority of bucks that respond to a rattling are going to circle downwind right. and come up towards the fight. Now, that goes back to their their adaptive abilities and their nose capabilities. They, you know, they're interested in the in the fight because you know they want to come see what's going on. Uh, for a couple different reasons. One, to see who's boss, but also, well, gee, maybe there's an estrus doe there and, and I can go ahead and read her while those two guys are fighting. Uh, okay. But they always come up, or generally they're going to come up downwind. So that just emphasizes the importance of scent to them.
0: Right. So they use that as, I mean, would you rate a whitetail's nose as the end-all, be-all of... Uh, I guess their defense mechanisms. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I would say that that's their most important weapon. Right. So, so if I, if if uh, they hear a rattle, they don't know it's a human, right? So they're going to come in to uh, inspect it. So they go downwind uh, to try to catch that scent. Um, or if they see movement from a tree, let's say. I've had, a, I've had examples where the deer doesn't necessarily spook as much as they, you know, again, trying to go back downwind and get that verification from their nose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Cool. Uh, let's see here. So, you know, back to that uh, shot placement, um, you know, did you have, of that gentleman's research, any other information that you would like to elaborate on?
1: Yeah, his his point, and he's a, the epitome of of bow hunter. Uh, he believes strongly that uh, a double lung shot is what you need to to put a deer down right. quickly and, and effectively. Okay, double double lung. Single lung is uh, not going to effectively kill the animal unless you also clip the
0: heart. Clip the heart. Okay, uh, or a multiple organs or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and
1: uh, he he couches it all in the concept of percentage of blood loss, and basically you have to lose about thirty to forty percent of the animal's blood uh, before they go into uh, shock. Right, and so uh, the quickest way you can get that, the is you know, the better. Right. So uh, a double lung shot not only causes blood loss, but it inhibits the ability to resupply oxygen. All right. You lose, that. You lose the... Uh, basically, the, the way a diaphragm works and, and, and all of our lungs work is uh, the lung, it, it's kind of negative pressure. The diaphragm pulls away from the lungs and that allows them to uh, suck the air in and then it pushes towards the lung and, and pushes the air out. So right. that suction ability and if you destroy the ability of that the negative pressure that suction then you've destroyed the ability of the animal to uh, regulate uh, so to uh,
0: breathe. so if you collapse that deer's diaphragm it suffocates them yes basically okay all right all right so then Let's see here. So we, we talked a, a little bit about sight. We talked about smell. We've talked about hearing. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the breeding the breeding cycle. Uh, and oh, one of my favorite topics. Seriously. All right. So we all try to, you know, hunt the rut, right? And let's say. And this is what I've learned over the years. You know, sometime around late October, these big mature bucks they get on their feet and they're trying to find that very first estrus doe. Um, once he finds her, typically, how long does he stay with her until it's time for him to drop her and move on to the next, the next doe?
1: Well, that that'll depend. Uh... Individual deer have a lot of variation in, in how long they'll hang with the doe, okay. and then uh, how many other bucks are around will affect that, uh, and, and then just relatively how many other does might be in estrus. You know, how close are you to the peak of the rut, and, and the need to go ahead and, uh, you know, the, the basic drive of an animal is to add its genetic material into the next generation, right. both females and males. That's, that's their main goal in life. That's, that's what drives animals to, to exist or to okay. be successful is to breed and produce young. And so uh, that male, if it's in the peak of the breeding, when there's a lot relatively more estrous females, he's going to be uh, more successful breeding once and then moving on and finding another doe to breed Uh, so not necessarily going to just breed once and move on but uh, the idea is he wants to breed with as many females as he can right so he's as it gets closer to the peak of rut he may stay less time than he would have earlier in the breeding uh, window if, if
0: if you would so Based off that, you th- you feel that he'll spend the most time with the first doe that he comes across, less time with the next doe, less time with the next doe, and uh, until he can't find any more does. Yeah.
1: Yes. yes. Okay. Well, but it, well, the breeding season is like a bell shaped curve, right? And, and you kind of have a slow entry into it, a build up to a peak, and then on the same on the other side, kind of a mirror image, it dropping off and then eventually going down to nothing. Okay. So this bell shape.
0: All right, so I've heard guys say this before that they've run into a, uh, another rut type scenario in December, right? Let's say a doe does not get bred uh, the first time around. Does she, in fact, go into a second estrus or third oh, yes. estrus until she's until she's bred? Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah, they. The the record is seven estruses by one doe in a, in a breeding facility in at the University of Georgia back in the I think it was the 1980s. They okay. actually counted how many estruses she went through um, by by breeding her with a uh, I think with either a vasectomized buck so she didn't get pregnant or they just didn't even expose her to a buck. I can't remember, but uh, seven times she went through estrus. So if uh if a doe doesn't conceive and you know start a pregnancy the first time they will definitely recycle. And our research indicates about ten percent don't take that first time. So you're gonna have about ten percent of the does have to recycle. And you also have, you know, you're in some parts of the country you have a fairly high percentage of your doe fawns that reach a critical mass to point where they become sexually mature later than the, the already mature does. And so they'll have a, you know, people refer to the second rut. That's, you know, these, these doe fawns coming in and then the recycling does that
0: didn't take. Right. The first so let's say a guy is trying to plan a, you know, he, he's got his rut and he wants to plan maybe another vacation based off of the quote unquote second rut or the second uh, set of uh, you know the second cycle estrous cycle to try to catch maybe some of those ten percent of does that haven't been bred and go back into heat. How long does that typically take for a time for a doe to reach estrus and then recycle back to estrus again?
1: Somewhere between twenty five and thirty days.
0: Okay. All right. So if it's if it's let's say she goes in on November tenth, then roughly November or December the first or second week in September, she'll be going in or even late October or late November, she'll be going into that again. Yeah, about you know,
1: twenty five or thirty days later, yes.
0: Okay, cool. That's pretty interesting. Um now is there a stopping point for that or is it something that just, I mean, in nature, there, you know, the breeding cycle is in place for a reason to give the fawns the best chance of survival, you know, in the spring, right? So mm-hmm. the breeding season for everything revolves around uh, survival rates. Um, does, does that stop if she's not bred? I mean,
1: well, she has this period during which she will recycle right now, uh, the adaptive time frame is critical and um you know i'm assuming you're from up north
0: i'm from iowa yes I,
1: okay yeah because the the breeding dates you're talking about would not be happening in, in mississippi we have we have okay. later <laughs> breeding date um, so i figured you must be up there somewhere um but uh you know if it's in the south she could produce a fawn uh in October and that fawn could live oh really yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, just south of uh, South South Mississippi southeastern Mississippi in particular the peak of breeding is lake late January early February okay and uh, you know up the northwest corner of our state uh, it's late November early December and and the majority of the state is around Christmas, Christmas to New Year's, which is fantastic for the deer to do that for us because a lot of people are off, off work during that time. <laughs> it's, it's really great that the way they work that for us.
0: Right. Yeah. So who controls the rut? I mean, obviously the doe has to be an estrus to breed, but mm-hmm. and you see that you see these images or I've seen from the stand where a doe will come by and she is just worn out mouth wide open Um, does does she have to be worn out and I guess in a way controlled or dominated by a buck in order for her to um, let him let that buck breed her or does she already know who you know through the sense through the, the hierarchy of dominance is going to breed her Well, that's that's a great thing to
1: talk about. Um, First off, the doe that's coming by, panting and and all worn out, she's probably in the early stage of estrus. She's not in standing estrus. So she's worn out because she's been chased by bucks who can tell she's coming into estrus, but she doesn't want anything of them yet. Okay. And uh, so they're wearing her out because she won't stand and stop and let them breed her okay when in, when a doe is fully ready in standing estrus she's not working hard she's not breathing hard she just stands there yeah and and if you've ever had the opportunity to see an actual breeding event it's not going to get her all worn out it's all right. pretty right. quick right. and um, you know so if she's worn out it's because she's not in standing estrus yet right and she is the one that determines when breeding is going to take place okay now uh you you kind of tantalized me there by talking about did she know who she was going to get bred by uh we've been doing one of our most exciting uh coolest projects uh i think i've ever been involved in we've been doing the last two years in in our research pens here uh and let me step back and and talk some basic ecology and and deer ecology. Uh, Bucks have antlers. Right. For a reason. Okay. And uh, otherwise they wouldn't invest a huge amount of nutrition into growing them every year. Okay. So their primary function is male-to-male combat and determining who's the boss. Okay. Okay. But if it didn't matter to the female, then they really wouldn't uh, probably grow as big antlers as they do. Because when it comes down to dominance, uh, our research has shown that there's kind of an optimum size of antler and beyond that, there's really no benefit to uh, it as a fighting weapon and okay. what's more important at that point is body size and the ability to push because back to you're describing the fight it's not they're not clinking their antlers together it's a it's a, a sumo wrestling event right and and that comes down to muscles and body mass not how many tines you have or you know drop tines or you know the, the big the big antlers they're not adaptive right the really big antlers. and that's why we don't have a lot of really large antlered bucks because it's not adaptive, right. but from a buck-to-buck from buck standpoint. But what uh, back to the study that we've been doing, uh, we wanted to test how important is it to be larger antlered as opposed to smaller antlered for a doe. Does she have a preference? And in theory, ecological theory suggests that it should matter to her who breeds her okay uh, now I, I said a few minutes ago that when when she's in standing estrus she is going to be bred by the buck that's behind her right but it should matter which buck breeds her uh, because the offspring she's she's investing a year of her life into her offspring which is the most critical thing she's going to do is move her genes into the gene pool in the future. And so it, it has to matter which buck is going to breed her. She has to have a preference. Right. And But it's never been proven that female deer of any uh, classification of, in the deer family, that they really have a preference for antler size. It's been shown in some uh, mouse studies where they uh, took uh, female Mice and exposed them to two different males, potential mates, and they looked at how the female uh, chose between the two. And it, the choice was based on which which of the adjacent uh, little pens that the males were in, the cages, which one she hung around the most. And they did this study. They took half of the females and bred her to her preferred male. And half of the females they took and bred to the non-preferred, fem- the non-preferred male. And the offspring of the females that were bred to the preferred male actually had a greater survival rate and were more dominant and better nest builders as offspring compared to the females that had to breed their non-preferred male. And that's just really cool ecological stuff there. Kind of dry, you know should matter to who she breeds because she's investing her contribution her life's contribution so in theory it should matter which buck she breeds and there's some theoretical literature that suggests that antlers are an indication of genetic quality so bigger antlers are saying hey i'm i've got what it takes you know i'm 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 genetically superior to a buck with smaller antlers. Right. um, So we developed a study where we controlled when a doe was in estrus. We we knew when she was going to be in estrus. We we, um, synchronized her estrus. When she was in estrus, we put her into a pen, a small pen, and on either side, we had a buck, uh, a buck on either side of her. They were the same age, same body size, and we manipulated their antlers. So one had big antlers, one had small antlers. We did that for about 25 different estrus does. We, we moved the bucks, we used different pairs of bucks, we manipulated, you know, changed the antlers from one buck to the other so we can, did all the science stuff to control right. all the, the confounding factors. And highly significantly, the does chose the bucks with the bigger antlers. Hmm. And and it makes sense ecologically, but it's never been proven because it was so di- it's such a difficult project to do, right? And, but the MSU Deer Lab figured out a way to do it, and uh, we've got that research results in in review right now in a major international journal. Uh, and we're hoping to get a positive review from that,
0: right? And that, that's that's kind of crazy because one of the biggest antler deer. That I've ever seen, and he was he was harvested by the neighbor when he was probably I think he was nine or ten years old, right? He had a he was two hundred inches, and he, he I bet I don't think he was anything over. I, I bet he was somewhere around two twenty five to two hundred and fifty pounds, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And. I, but also on another farm, I've seen the dominant buck be a hundred and thirty-inch ten-pointer, who's probably pushing uh, over three hundred pounds, and mm-hmm. he, you know, and he ruled the roost over that. So does aggression and the ability to fight off that, you know, the rest of the bucks trump that trump what a doe is actually i, I, I want to say attracted to
1: well i don't know if it trumps what she's attracted to what we proved in this one announced study is that she does prefer larger antlers over smaller antlers for a given age and a given body size so antler size does matter but when it comes to buck to buck interaction i mentioned a few minutes ago that we've we found an optimum antler size that appears to optimize the fighting ability of a buck. And right. above that, there's no benefit to him from a fighting standpoint. Now, does it matter whether she might prefer a larger one? And from our more recent research, yes. She does prefer larger antlers for this given age and a given body size. We've also looked at age and body size without antlers. Controlling for antlers, same age, different body. Controlling again for antlers, uh, different ages, same body size, and, and we're still analyzing those data. But there's, there's past evidence, and it, it's ecologically it should matter. It, a female should prefer an older male to a younger male, because an older male has proven one thing that should matter to her, and that's longevity. All right. And, and the basis for the whole quality deer management approach, letting younger bucks grow into older bucks for reproductive benefits, I mean, that's, that's true. I mean, a female is going to prefer an older male because he has already proven to her that he's going to live long enough to be successful a young buck is not going to be as interesting to a doe that's potentially in estrus because she doesn't know that he's going to live as long okay he could die the next day right and and that's why there's an age preference uh an apparent age preference and, and we're going to prove it one way or the other with this study that we're analyzing right now but uh there's adequate evidence, previous research, that older bucks will bring a do, does into estrus more readily than younger bucks. And, and so they do prefer older bucks. And it's, more, it's a biostimulation. Uh, it'll bring them into estrus earlier if, if you have older bucks in a population compared to a population with just a bunch of younger bucks.
0: So, did your did you do any research yet about, let's say, a three year old with some, um, bigger antlers versus um, a bigger bodied five year old with smaller antlers?
1: Yeah, uh, great question, Dan. Uh, these last two years, we've looked at just antler size, controlling age and body size. Okay. Just age controlling and and just body size controlling. And we haven't started tweaking those different combinations.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Now back to the doe uh, breeding portion of it. When a doe, um, let's say she's a mature doe, she's gonna go into est- she's or I guess she doesn't need, necessarily need to be even be the dominant or mature doe, but she is going into estrus, and she's one of the first does that go into estrus. Is she seeking uh the the biggest most mature dominant buck or is that the buck's responsibility to catch her on her daily routine her daily pattern
1: there there is some evidence that does make excursions more frequently out of their normal home range during and leading up to breeding uh, during the breeding season they make these excursions and and the best explanation for that is they are either advertising themselves or actually looking for other for a buck that she might find more attractive so uh yes there's going to be some uh, preferences expressed through her behavior
0: Okay. okay man that's some that's some awesome information um now, I'm trying to think of there's if there's anything else. I got a whole like piece of paper with just scribbled notes down all over it. But is there any other exciting facts or information just about the whitetail in general that uh, you think we might find interesting?
1: Well, I'll, I'll throw out a little bit more about our, our um, genetic analysis of the breeding system in in whitetails. Okay, uh, my one of my earlier Uh, doctoral students here at Mississippi State Randy DeYoung that was a a major emphasis of his doctoral work and we were the first people first researchers to document multiple paternity and that's a phenomenon where uh, twins or triplets from a doe are actually sired by more than one male more than one sire and Uh, We first documented it in our research pens, and then since then we've looked in six, uh, well, over six now, wild populations. And one in four sets of twins are sired by different bucks. So three out of four sets of twins will be sired by a single sire. But one out of four, 25%, on average, of sets of twins are conceived by two different fathers.
0: That is so crazy.
1: That shows that a doe is being bred by more than one buck when, she, when she's in estrus.
0: Okay, I, I, have a crazy, I have a crazy question for you. Uh, and I don't, I don't know why this popped into my head. But do you think that could happen with humans?
1: Well, most human twins are, well, no, I wouldn't say that. Uh, All deer twins are fraternal. There's no identical twins in in deer. Humans, uh, there are identical twins and then there are fraternal twins. Where Fraternal twin is where you have two eggs released and they are separately fertilized. An identical twin is where you have an egg fertilized, and then it splits into two identical uh, embryos. Gotcha. Uh, So could you, if a woman ovulated, you know, two eggs, yes. And if she had two sexual partners when she was ovulating, yeah, it could happen.
0: All right. Now I know. (laughs) And some other
1: really cool stuff that that Randy found, uh, looking at antler size, and the, the antler size of successful breeders in the population. Uh, successful breeders have average antler size to, compared to the, the population overall average. So in other words, successful breeders don't have bigger antlers on average than any other buck at the same age in the population. Right. So it's so... not antler size that's determining who's going to breed it's, you know, the buck that is bigger body size that can fight more effectively right. and, and has an optimum antler size from the standpoint of the buck-to-buck interactions. Right. Now, part of the, the, the multiple paternity is when those two bucks are fighting and that doe is standing there and she's in standing estrus, any other buck can come up and breed her. And we've, we've, we've looked at the timing of multiple paternity, and it's greatest, the greatest amount of multiple paternity occurs during the peak of the breeding when the most does are in estrus. And so when there's only a few does in estrus, you know, a dominant buck can more effectively control her for that entire time. Earlier you asked me, how long is a buck going to stay with a doe? it's going to stay longer earlier in the breeding season because there's not another doe that's in estrus. Right. Um, But as you get into the peak of estrus, there are does popping out eggs, you know, across the landscape. And so there's just more, you know, I'm going to breed her and stay with her for a while. And I'm going to run on and look for another one. And, and, you know, it's crazy. Right. Crazy. And, you know, it's, that's how dear the deer breeding system is it's crazy and that's why hunters see more uh, older age bucks during the peak of the breeding
0: man i love i just want to say i love science and i love biology and i love the you know how all these all these things kind of kind of come together
1: well I'm, i have i'm sharing i'm sharing it it sharing with you, Dan, uh, I love doing science, and I love doing science that informs management decisions, and I also love doing cool science like this antler of the female choice stuff has absolutely yeah. no management application, but yeah. it's just really cool, Right. and uh, you know, so 95% of what we do here at the deer lab is directly applicable to management. And then that 5% is that cool stuff like the female
0: choice. Right. Do you have uh, any type of studies that indicate what, how old a buck is or at what age he grows his biggest set of antlers?
1: Oh, sure. Uh, we Based on a combination of studies, uh, the best field work has been done in South Texas because they have... Uh, so much interest in adult buck management there. Uh, in South Texas, in the, in the wild, uh, and I say wild, but, you know, they may have supplemental feeding. They may be pretty intensively managed, but it's wild. Um, you're looking at six to seven years of age for maximum antler size. Uh, okay. in, a, in a breeding, in, a, in our controlled research facility, you know, they might reach maturity as early as five but I try to tell hunters in, from an application standpoint, try to get bucks to six years of age as a target for management because that's when the biggest antlers are going to be available. And then what's another really critical point, Dan, to, to um, emphasize in buck management, mature buck management, is just because they reach six, you don't have to rush to judgment. They're going to maintain the same antler size size Provided there's a stable environment and, and they don't come down with a particular disease in a given year, they're going to maintain that antler size through 10 years of age. So okay. you don't have to just rush out and, oh, I think he's mature, so I'm going to go ahead and shoot him. Right. If you're not sure or you think he might be, but yeah maybe not, give him another year. He's not going to go downhill.
0: Now, he if might if die the, of the envir- mortality,
1: you know. yeah, but
0: if the that's, that's antler- another question, right? If the environment is controlled, his you know after six years old, he's going to maintain that for a couple more years, based you know given he has the the same amount of nutrition. Yes, if if it's okay. stable, stable. Right. Okay, now a lot of people always say, well, a two year old, you know, obviously this is not true, but a true. Uh, a two-year-old where I where I'm from is a mature buck, you know that's that's not true. But what is considered a mature deer? And the reason I ask this is because I have um, I know someone who raises deer, and he told me once that at the end of the fourth year, their skeletal system stops growing, and then for some reason they uh, that all that energy goes from growing skeletal to putting on body weight. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on any of that?
1: Yeah. uh, I'll correct those numbers a little bit. Okay. Uh, The skeletal system is going to stop growing by the time he's two years of age.
0: Oh, okay. Uh,
1: We've done that with x-ray evaluation of the growth, uh, the tips of the long bones are what continue to grow. And once you... By the time a buck is two years of age, all of his growth areas of bone are finished. They're, okay. they're, 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 bu- they're mineralized, so they're no longer growing longer. Right. Uh, now, he, he's going to start putting more mass on after two years of age. And, and really, I mean, he's starting, he's going to be heavier at two than he was at one, but right. his full skeletal growth will be absolutely shut down by two years of age.
0: Okay. So does that extra energy then go into antler development or just putting on mass, uh, body weight, fat, muscle? Yes.
1: Uh, But, uh, you know, tweaking the difference, I mean, yes to all of those. uh, But as I think I've emphasized here, body size and mass is going to be a little bit more important than antler size on the buck-to-buck interactions. Right. And so he's going to be better off adding mass and muscle mass than growing proportionately bigger antlers. Right. That said, we know that antler size isn't going to be maximum until six. Well, you know what? That's because it's not until five or six that he's maxed out his body. And once he's maxed out his body, then he can max out his antlers because the antlers are secondary to his body size in terms of his breeding potential success.
0: Right. On that
1: buck to buck interaction stuff.
0: For sure. Now we talked with uh, Bronson on the uh, wired to hunt podcast and he shared some of this information and I like it so much. I just want to hear you say it too, but the the whole myth about calling a small buck to you know because you know he's only 120 inches uh, he'll never or, or 100 inches he'll never be a Boone and Crockett deer right um is is that does calling deer have any effect in antler size on a farm or, or spreading genetics oh
1: absolutely no effect on genetics thank you
0: no effect like on that.
1: Genetics. <laughs> it, it is an, it can be an important uh, management tool for population control and improving the cohorts uh, growing, going forward. Uh, there's not an infinite number or amount of forage right. on, on a property. And so you need to manage the number of mouths that are eating that forage. And so uh, part of our uh, approach to buck management. and and deer population management is if you are trying to uh maximize antler size in a deer population you're wanting to grow deer to full maturity and if you don't have a if you have plenty of bucks and you don't have enough forage for everybody then you do need to be making some culling decisions and uh if i could do a little self-promotion here uh that the msu deer lab just yesterday launched our uh our podcast series okay we call it deer university and our theme is taking science and applying it to management uh and i think it fits really well with your podcasts you know you say you like science and talking about the application that's exactly what we're doing with our deer university podcasts perfect and uh our two of our first four launch podcasts deal with the question of culling. So uh, I would, if you wouldn't mind me plugging uh, your listeners, oh,
0: yeah.
1: go Heck go yeah. to uh, search for Deer University, and uh, there's four that are up there on the board right now. You can subscribe and download those four, and we're going to have we're going to try to have a weekly podcast uh, and and well it'd be great to continue talking talking to you dan on on your
0: podcast as well perfect yeah that's uh heck yeah uh i just i i always love it when i you hear someone on tv or something say oh we got to get this you know he has you know he's got small antlers uh we're going to take him out of the herd because uh uh we don't want this genetic to spread all over the farm which like you said there's no merit for that whatsoever
1: no sure is and and i would love on another opportunity to talk with you to talk about that in more detail why that doesn't work
0: heck yeah i'm all about having you on anytime you want to come on man this is uh you have a you have a a free pass to be a guest on this podcast
1: all right dan well well we'll talk about it another time to uh talk and i'll look forward to it enjoyed it very much
0: well, I tell you what, man. I, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to to do this. And again, guys, uh, if you love what we talked about today, go check out the Deer University podcast. Uh, is it on the Mississippi State University website? Well, I'm,
1: I'm not a I'm not a technological guy like as much as Bronson, and, and you're obviously a technological guy. Uh, wherever you go for podcasts, is it?
0: iTunes they're, or... Yeah, they got them all over the place. So I, the best right. thing to do is probably just Google Deer University Podcast. Uh, yeah, and um,
1: you can go to our msudeerlab.com webpage, and there's a link there that'll take you to another page that lists the specific podcasts. Or you can just oh, okay. go to, uh, on my phone, I just went to the the iPod, the podcast app on my phone, and typed in deer university and and it took it right to it
0: all right well again i tell you what man it's been a pleasure thank you very much and uh uh, looking forward to uh, our next interaction and uh uh sharing the the uh the results of some of the studies that you're you're currently doing
1: look forward to it from one deer nut to another
0: and there you have it Huge shout-out to Steve from Mississippi State University for coming on the podcast. Be sure to check out their new podcast coming up. Uh, If you're into all things whitetail, that should be full of a lot of information. I know I'm going to check it out when I get the opportunity. Also, huge shout-out to you, the listener. Thank you very much hopefully uh you found this podcast interesting i know i did second huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast you know the one we already mentioned today deerlab.com exodus trail cameras ripcord arrow rests ozonics wasp archery gearhead bows Lone Wolf tree stands. So be sure to go check out all those products and remember with those products there. I am running discounts or I'm you can get discounts just for listening to this podcast, uh, especially with Exodus, uh, Wasp and Lone Wolf and Deer Labs. So uh there's a lot of offers out there. Be sure to check those out. Let's see here. Um also National Deer Alliance. If you haven't already, go do it. Please. I don't know. I don't. I don't even know what, know what to say. Just go, sign up, and be a part of it. Get the information and educate yourself on the happenings, especially if you're a, a deer hunter. Other than that, if you guys are going to be in a tree, you're going to be cutting tree stands. You're going to be I don't know bird watching from an elevated position. Wear your damn safety harness.
1: Thank you.